Now, right off the bat, here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. Have you ever, and be honest, you have to be honest and answer this question. Have you ever been in a restaurant, okay, before and, and seen a, a little uh, puddle, a little pool of water, okay, a slippery spot, as it were, and have you ever, because there was no, like, caution sign, has it ever crossed your mind just to go ahead and take a spill, right, in the hopes that somehow you could cash hundreds of thousands of dollars in a lawsuit, has that ever come to mind for you? Anybody, by raise of hand, all right? There we go. Thank you, my sister, Kristen. An honest person right there, okay? Restaurants are hotbeds for lawsuits, aren't they? Uh, there's a story, and I wasn't there, but my mother-in-law had like a... Heidi, are you, are you in here? Heidi, what happened to your mom? She like had a glass cup fall on her head, right? Okay, so a tray at Olive Garden like falls on her head, and all of the all of the, the the you know the drinks go everywhere. Did glass get in her hair though, or something? Okay, so thank you. My my wife seems so energetic tonight, doesn't she? She's like, stop talking to me. Um, so so glass like glass like gets in her hair, right? And so Olive Garden, I mean, just just flocks to the situation, right? I mean, they're giving her gift cards. They're like, hey, go to the mall and pick out brand new clothes, right? Some of us dream of that day, right? I mean, some of us are like in Olive Garden, like, you know, giving the waitress a little elbow and the hopes, right? Come on, I need some new Pumas. Lord Jesus, please fill my, my shoes with some water, right? Like, we're, we're praying for it, okay? Um, lawsuits in general are, are a crazy thing, and I... The closest time I ever came to one, okay, or at least I think in my mind, uh, I've shared this story with you guys before. In all of my wise intelligence, I decided to uh, lease a brand new vehicle of mine to a person that I had met on Craigslist because, you know, that seemed to make a lot of sense, right? And you guys know the story, how it went. It didn't go well. I didn't get paid a dollar over a year that he had had the vehicle, and uh, he ended up putting 20,000 more miles on than what he said, 40,000 miles in total. Anyway... So I have like all of the contracts and the documents. I mean, I, like this guy essentially owes my family like five grand, okay? And I've got like all the paperwork. So I finally get the van back, right? And I'm just like, okay, so do I, do I take the guy to court? Do we go? And there was like, I gotta be, I'm just gonna be real, okay, Kristen? All right, I'm just gonna be real. There was one side of me that was thinking, man, five grand. Like this guy owes me that. He owes me every single dollar. In fact, if I count in the emotional draw on my heart, it should be like 50 grand, really, is what he owes me, you know? So there was one side that wanted revenge, that wanted to, to get mine, right? That wanted to make sure that he could, he could suffer. I mean, that was this, yes, I mean, that was the, the piece of my heart. But thankfully, there was this other piece. And I don't believe like a demon on one shoulder, an angel in the other. I believe my flesh and the spirit inside of me, okay? So... Thankfully, the spirit inside of me had this check, and Heidi and I were talking about it. And then one day at dinner, I was sitting down with my father-in-law. Ooh, that dude is a, just a money dude, okay? He's a farmer, a central Illinois guy. I mean, just, he's just a stud in the faith. And we were talking about the situation, and he just he looked at me in the eyes. He said, basically, don't you even think about taking that guy to court. And he's like, part of that is your mistake. You need to swallow your air and walk away. And I was like, yes, sir, you know? <laughs> Yes, sir. Bradley, I will walk away. Um, so how about you? Have you ever been close to a lawsuit? I know when you came here tonight, you're thinking, okay, so we studied incest last week. What, what, what could we study this week, right? Like, 
What possibly is next? Well, in a strange twist of events, in back-to-back weeks, yes, we have incest and lawsuits right, right there together, right? And, and if, you, if you were here last week, you're, and if you weren't here, rather, maybe you're a little bit confused, right? Um, but we're walking right through 1 Corinthians. And what we saw last week is that uh, the church in Corinth, uh, in all of their hot messedness, okay, it's a word, look it up, they... They have allowed an incestuous relationship to go on unrepentant in the church. And so Paul comes in and he's like, you need to kick this brother out. Kick him out. Okay, excommunication. Why? We've worked through the process. He has not repented. He continues like a dog returns to its vomit to go back to his sin. So he need not be in the body anymore. So in that that same string of thinking... We're going to hear another hard teaching tonight, which is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. They're they're kind of countercultural, aren't they? The red letters, aren't they? Here's an example. Look at this from Matthew 5. Kind of countercultural. But I say to you, love your enemies. We could just like walk away now, right? Okay, I I don't like, I don't see this, this, this cultural teaching on bumper stickers, right? And not just love your enemies, but pray for those, that's right, who persecute you, which which in that day and age was, was very, very real and present and alive, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on evil and, and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And the unjust. Four, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Right. His teachings are hard. They're countercultural. They, they at times don't make sense. They don't compute in us because we've been trained in our sin in a different way. Uh, Just before this text in Matthew 5, another difficult teaching in the red letters. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, speaking from the Old Testament, but verse 39, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And, And we've certainly wrestled with this text here. It's strange, right? Like Jesus, what what are you, what what are the implications of this? Well, he goes on, look at this. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, look at this, red letters straight out of Jesus' mouth, let him have your cloak as well. So you won the tunic, here, go ahead and take my cloak. It's all good. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, I've never adhered to this, go with him two miles, okay? I'm a fan of running and walking the least I possibly can. Hard teachings. And again, just like last week, what starts out about incest, it becomes something so much more, and that will be our case tonight. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What starts out as lawsuits and the teachings thereof, all of a sudden this text takes a drastic turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to study all the way from verse 1 to 11. The subtitle in my Bible reads, Lawsuits Against Believers. Here we go. You guys ready? Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So apparently what's going on here in Corinth is is in their hot messedness, there is this... um, giving in to Greek culture. In Greek culture, lawsuits and things of the law had become a means of entertainment. 
So in other words, like a uh, gladiator festival or uh, actually it's probably not a gladiator festival, maybe like a gladiator killing, okay, or, or something, right? Like, like a gladiator fest, okay, um, law had become a gathering of people. So people would come to, hey, what are you doing today? Well, I'm going to go watch so-and-so versus so-and-so because, uh, you know, they're in a lawsuit. We can't relate to that at all, can we? I'm sure none of you ever watched the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm sure, right? I'm sure for none of you it was not entertainment, right? And so you're like, O.J. Simpson doesn't ring a bell. Really? Okay. <laughs> right? If you're, not 20, if you're 20 years old and younger, I can understand. But everybody else knows exactly, right? And what was the Shapiro? What was the other guy's name? Cochran, okay, you, yeah, there we go, right, He's, he watched it in a thing or two, right. So apparently in Corinth, um, there's some believers who are, who are pursuing other believers in what Paul calls the unrighteous court. What I want to do is I want to get to the core of this. I want to get to the heart of this. Next slide, check this out. Next slide if you can, Andrew, Okay. The core of this is what Paul has said is the issue. What Paul has made clear that the issue is in Corinth is they are immature. And so uh, believers pursuing believers in lawsuits is yet one more sign of immaturity. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you with what? Milk, not solid food. For you are not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. Look at this. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? They are still acting immaturely. And I want to show you how immaturity would lead to a believer versus believer in a lawsuit. Next slide. This is where we learn, right? Okay, as my kids were growing up, this is the, the stage one of relational development, okay? Stage one of relational development and dealing with conflict is retaliation, Right? You're trying to take my bike, oh yeah, take a, you know, a right fist to the face, right, okay? Like, that's how kids operate, okay? Like, at first, they're they're trying to deal with things on their own, but they do so in retaliation. You wronged me, now I wrong you. And I mean, I, I, this is my house every day. Anybody else, right? I mean, it's constant. So-and-so took so-and-so's ball, boom, you know, right hook. Now the kid's on the ground. Now we need ice. Now this kid's upset. I mean, it's, it's constant retaliation. It's immature, okay? Next slide. So the first phase of our relational understanding and conflict is to retaliate. Then what happens, next slide, is our parents step in, and they say, hey, listen, you guys need not retaliate. Please do not hit your brother and sister. So then what do brother and sister do? then they have to tattletale because they can't deal with their own issues. So now they got to bring mom and dad in. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you said I couldn't hit them back. And so guess what, mom? He hit me. Right. They took my book. Right. And I don't know about your house, but my house is just one never-ending source of tattletaling. Right. And I've told Heidi before, and we've gone, we've gone periods of time and all, in all honesty, where I've just said, like, you guys figure it out, you know, like, right? So I, I've told the boys before, don't judge me, I've told the boys before, look, if Maddox hits you, you just hit him back, you guys figure it out, you know? I'm tired of being brought into this, okay? And that went well for a day or so, okay? 
right? But then pretty soon you come downstairs with like bloody mouths and bloody nose, and there's a piece of me that enjoys that because I'm like, my boys are growing up and they're getting strong, right? But then Heidi's like, why are the kids' nose bleeding again? I'm like, I don't know. I, they must have fallen on accident, right? Do you see how we're trained? It's no wonder why it is so difficult to break this pattern, to deal with our own stuff, to have hard conversations. Because as kids were trained, okay, retaliation is bad, at least it, it breeds consequence. So the other, only other way to do it is to bring someone else involved. I can't really take care of my own stuff because rarely do you see three-year-olds sitting down and talking about their feelings. Right. You rarely see, you know, two four-year-olds say, hey, hold on a second. You just took my bike. Can we talk about it for a minute? Right? And they, like, pour some tea. Right? And everyone sits down. Okay? It really hurt my feelings when you took my bike. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry. I didn't even know it was your bike. It was sitting there. It looked like it. Right? And they, like, go back and forth, and they hug it out. When have you ever seen this? Right? Okay? Because most generally a four-year-old, they're, they're unregenerate non-believers. My contention to you is that Corinth is still right here. My contention to you is that many of us are still right here. Now, it's not tattletaling to our parents, but we're doing just the same with our friends. Unwilling to deal with our own stuff, unwilling to walk through biblical conflict, hard conversations instead. We know we can't retaliate. Well, we want to, but we decide we're not going to because that will implicate us. And so rather we tattletale, again, not to someone maybe that can step in and take care of it, but we gossip. This is where Corinth is. Look, we'd rather just tattletale. We'd rather just bring someone else in because we really can't handle our own stuff. Well, in fruitful biblical relationship, there's a third component. Next slide. It's loving and gracious conversation. You hurt me. You wronged me. You sinned against me. And together now let's repent and press on towards the person of Christ. This is the point that Corinth has not gotten to. And so you've got believers versus believers in courts, and it's a mess. Uh, not just believers, uh, verse believers in court, but in a pagan, not righteous court system. And that's what Paul is calling to task. He's like, look, you guys are, are going to court with non-believers as the judge. Do you understand all of the implications of that? Before we move on, I just want to make sure you understand. The cyclical pattern of immaturity is something happens wrong. Uh, at times I retaliate, most often I don't. But most often I tattletale, and I'm, t I'm calling us each to repentance tonight. We're called biblically in love and grace to deal with our situations and deal with hard conversations. And we're going to keep in that understanding tonight. Verse 2, look at this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Crazy passage. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases. You see his argument? Like, look, you're going to one day judge with the ancient of days. Okay. And so if you're going to like be with him in that, not, we're going to get there in a second, then how in the world can you not figure out some of these frivolous lawsuits, some of these frivolous things that you're going against each other? Uh, you can relate. Have you ever had this in your marriage? I'm sure not, but um, we're like you don't even know what you're battling about, but 
you know that you're battling to be right. Have you ever had the kind of argument in your marriage where like after like 10 minutes you forgot what the subject matter was? But it just became about who can throw like the most zingers, right? Or who can like bring up ancient family past pains the most? Or who can like, you know, give the best body language or the best cold shoulder? We love to be right. I remember the pride and arrogance that Paul has called out much in Corinth, right? Their pride and arrogance now has gotten to, the, to this obsession. Maybe we could even say this lust of being right. And he's like, look, you're going to judge the world. Okay. So don't you think you can figure this out? Well, the question is, what in the world does that mean? Judge the world. There, there's not any um, explicit text that we can find where it's like, verbatim, all of the saints in glory with Christ will judge the world. There's a couple passages, one that we'll see here in a second, and another one where Jesus is describing to his disciples, like one day, okay, me on my throne, you're going to be with me judging the tribes of Israel. He tells that to the disciples. One of the other prophetic passages comes from Daniel chapter 7. Check this out. This will, I I, I at least hope, uh, help us a little bit. Here's what Daniel writes. As I look, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was uh, fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Next slide, verse 10. A stream of fire uh, issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And so many... Uh, historians and theologians believe that, that this court represents part of what Paul is writing in Corinth, that you're going you're gonna to stand in judgment. But not just that, not just of the world. Look what he adds here in verse 3. It's not a teaching about lawsuits unless angels come up. Verse 3, look at this. That was a joke, okay? Do, you're like, oh yeah, of course, angels and lawsuits. Uh, verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, I believe verse 14, uh, alludes to this uh, angels being ministering spirits. And again, uh, even though it would be a whole teaching in and of itself, the doctrine and theology of angels, we could say uh, what Paul is pointing to is that uh, there would even be uh, in our judgments in the last days a certain measure of angels as ministering spirits sitting underneath us. The whole point is, look, You're in Christ. You're an heir to the throne, to this beautiful inheritance. So what in the world are you doing getting caught up? You are wasting time and you're entertaining the pagans. You're going to a pagan court and you're entertaining them with your frivolous lawsuits. When all of the while you could be on mission loving others instead, you're loving yourself to the point of wanting to be right, even in the court of public opinion. And so he says in verse 4, and this is huge, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have, what, what's the word? No standing in the church. Now for me, the floodgates open on this verse. If you have these issues, why do you lay them before uh, those who have no standing in the church? I want to I step back one second. Okay. Some of you might be at this juncture, might be like, Mark, are you saying that there is never a situation ever in the Bible where we should uh, involve the court? 
No, I'm not saying that at all because what does the scripture also teach? That we're to submit to what? Governing authorities, okay? Uh, so it doesn't mean if, A, if you're convicted of a crime, right, that you get to, like, walk into the court and say, 1 Corinthians 6, judge, take that, right? I'm a believer. I know I stole something, but don't you worry about it. 1 Corinthians 6, read it, right? Like, no, okay, that's not going to work for you, okay? Um, there are other situations as well, okay? This is really about civil suits, about believers pursuing believers, trying to get something or gain something back. I think there are certainly times in the messiness and the unfortunateness of divorce, okay, in custody battles where uh, the courts have to come in. But listen, listen, listen. Even in those situations, I still believe the better way, even in divorce, even in custody, would be for the believer and the believer to come together, even in the crazy circumstances, and, and work it out together. That's still the better way. Can it happen that way all the time? No. Is there biblical room for grace in that area? I believe yes. Okay. But there are times where I just say like, man, I know it would be crazy, but what a testimony to all of those around you, even though you're working through this uh, divorce, uh, that you could still work through it together, that your children could watch grace and mercy even amidst hurt and pain. So verse 4, though, look at this again. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This is the same reason why we would teach here that being unequally yoked is absolute insanity. A believer to date a non-believer would stand on this same principle. Like, why in the world would you put yourself... In a situation when someone is not just, had, like what we would say, not just have a different standard, but isn't worshiping the God that you're worshiping. Like how in the world could you date that person and say, this is going to go well for us, okay? We're building a foundation on not really sure. We're really unified. We're both good people and moral people. But if he or she does not worship God, that means they worship themselves. That didn't go so well for a, an argument or a discussion, rather, that I had with an atheist one time. We were chatting, and I always, I love those conversations because I never, like, get into this, you know, this battle or this argument. But I ended up saying, you know, so, hey, you, you believe there's no God, right? Yes, no God at all. And so I was like, well, who has ultimate authority, right? And so what started happening is this, is this atheist was saying uh, statements like, well, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is our story, and, you know, this is about us becoming self-realized and us pursuing self. And so I just stepped, stepped back, and I was like, so, so really, you're God then, right? Because if this whole scenario revolves around you, then aren't, like, aren't you sovereign? Aren't you in control? Uh, true story, that particular individual later on got saved, right? But, like, there's certain situations Okay, where it doesn't happen, some of you girls right now are like, oh, sweet, so that boy can get saved. But listen, listen, God does the saving, okay, not your beauty or not your dating skills, all right? And so it's the exact same premise here. Well, let's read it one more time. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This makes no sense. Verse 5, he goes on. This is heavy language. I say this to your, what's the word? Shame, that's not a term of endearment, okay? 
Remember what he said a couple you know, chapters ago. He said, I don't do this to shame you. Now he says it uh, you know, unequivocally. Look, I say this to your shame, okay? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So look, it's not just that you can deal with it uh, between each other, but as we studied in Matthew 18... If you go to your brother and he still is unrepentant to that way that he sinned against you, then you bring someone else in. Well, what has Corinth been doing this whole time? They've been boasting about how what? How wise they are. You see the irony? Paul's like, what? So there's no one wise enough to step in and and like moderate and mediate here between the two of you? And yet you're boasting about your wisdom? You're immature. You're going to an unrighteous court dealing with issues that could be dealt with in the church and show the unrighteous the power of the gospel. I say to your shame, can it not be that there was no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Look at this. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, my big question in all this has been why? Why do we treat each other like we do? Why do we say the things about one another that we do? Why in Corinth would a brother desire to put his other brother in a situation where he is publicly humiliated? Why is that desire in your heart? Uh, Why are there times in the body of Christ that you want ultimate and final judgment now? You're like, God, that person needs no more grace. Really what they need is the gavel right on their forehead. God, take them down. God, show them how hurtful they've been. Why is it that we long for that? Um, God has unearthed some massive realizations in me about this. But before we pursue those things, I want to cause all of us just to halt right now and to collectively pray together right now. God, help us. We have, in our relationships with one another, one of the greatest opportunities to communicate the power of the gospel. Simply and purely in our relationships. The world is looking in trying to catch us at every angle or every position. And yet we, at the core of who we are, have an opportunity to show a different way, to show a love your enemy kind of way, to show a don't judge kind of way, to show a, listen, a pray for those who persecute you kind of way. We have that opportunity. Corinth wasn't taking advantage of it. I fear we aren't as well. He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. To pursue a believer in a lawsuit is a lose-lose. Two of you will go in, and yes, the judge will award one of you victory, but you've still lost. You've still lost. Because you just told the whole world 
that the gospel and grace and mercy and relationship wasn't enough to bring reconciliation and repentance. You've already been defeated, he says. Why not rather suffer wrong? I love that. Why not just walk away? Even though in the end, maybe you would have have been awarded like being right. And that was certainly the case in my van. I would have walked in. I would have showed the judge like, judge, look, here's like six contracts. This guy stole X amount of dollars from me. I mean, case closed. And you know what would have happened? If I would, I would have walked away from that situation, the guy already didn't have any money. I would have walked away with what? Some feeling of being right? It was my own sin that put me in the situation in the first place. And somehow that bringing revenge or retaliating on someone would bring me freedom? No, it never does. Has retaliation or revenge in a relationship ever brought you ultimate freedom? Has even the desire of it brought you freedom? No. Even the longing in your heart to see judgment come on someone else, listen, has brought some of you years worth of hurt. Because in the unforgiveness of your heart, some of you are still battling with that thing that happened 10 years ago. Paul says, wouldn't it be better if you just suffered wrong? If you just said, I'm going to walk away. I don't need to be right. Look at this. Why not rather be defrauded? How about that question? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Listen to this. Things have gotten so intense in Corinth. It's not just that they're taking one another to lawsuits. It's that they're actually cheating one another. So like a believer is coming in the courtroom with a false piece of evidence. You're, you're not even just coming to court. You're actually trying to harm maliciously one another. Does anyone else think in this body that, that there should be a different way? Does anyone else here like desire and long for relationships, not just in the local body, but the church holistically to show the world the power of the gospel? And so Paul, all of a sudden, in a drastic turn, in a text that seems to be about lawsuits. Seems like randomly says this, but oh my goodness. Check out verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor Adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of these people, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. When I read the scripture, the catalog starts reeling of other passages that are like those that I'm reading. There's one that I thought of when I started reading this particular one. It's found in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And I love the last part of verse 21. Things like these, right? Pretty much sums it up, right? 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are heavy words. Especially because, next slide, if you look at this list now in total, do you see yourself up there at all? Okay, if I gave you like a a dry erase marker that works somehow on screens, which wouldn't work, but anyway, you understand what I'm saying. And you had a one by one go up to the screen and check mark all of these that you've ever struggled with. That you've ever battled with, that have ever been a part of your journey, right? And we're one by one. We put you on display. I gave you a little marker. I said, hey, have at it. Go on. Gave you a ladder, okay? Paul says is that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, because we have a systematic doctrine in the New Testament, we know what he's saying. He's not talking about if if my heart has ever been sexually immoral. He's not talking if my heart uh, has ever uh, reviled or if I've ever been greedy. He's saying that if these things dominate your life in an unrepentant way with your back to the power of who God is, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to make sure every single person tonight hears this. If this is the fruit of your life in an unrepentant way, back turned to the power of God, the the scripture makes clear you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So why does he bring this up in lawsuits? Right? Like it's like the spirit is like doing weird things in Paul. All right, so here I'm gonna pen this out. I started to type on a (laughs) type, right? Like Paul was writing on a typewriter or something. Um You know, he's penning, right? And he's like, all right, now incest. And now here we go, lawsuits. Oh, and now let's go ahead and bring up all the things that if people do them, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But no, 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 no. He has a very precise point. And his point is this. Next slide. So if I'm a Corinthian... If I'm in the gathering where this letter would have been read, by this point I've certainly taken some punches. By this point in the letter, I've certainly been convicted many times. The signs that Corinth overall was very, very immature were great. So as a person in the church, a new believer that has stayed a new believer, immature. And then I hear this long list of things that if I... If I am these things, then then I will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then Paul says, and such were some of you. Were. Were. Is that anybody here tonight? Were an adulterer. Were an idolater. Were a drunkard. Were dominated by gossip and judgment. That long list for many of you is the list that is a reminder of the past. But you're like, Mark, I I still battle with those things. Yes, my friends, that's the difference. We once were consumed by them. Now we battle against them through the Spirit of God. You were those things, he says. Are you ready for this language? Check this out in the rest of verse 11. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed. Hello. You were those things, but you were washed. Now, some say this is pointing to baptism as the public display of repentance and what God's done. Or others are just saying, look, you've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Either way, you've been washed. You were washed, he says. You were sanctified. You're different now. You're growing. You're, you're maturing. This is who you are in Christ. And you were justified. Hello. Listen, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I feel like, like I've just like got up in the heart of Paul as he's writing. And again, like, let's be honest, right? Again, you, you don't turn to 1 Corinthians 6 in your personal study because you're just fired up about learning about lawsuits. You know what I'm saying? Like, like none of you wake up in the morning and you're just like, okay, I can't wait. And this is, right? But time after time after time, in God's word, because it's living and active, all of a sudden you're brought to this, this truth that you can't run away from and that all of a sudden becomes so real for you, right? So all of a sudden, as I'm reading this, as I'm studying this, I'm just, I'm brought into the heart of Paul. Here's why. He uses a term justified in a whole description about law. Uh, the word justified is a judiciary term. Uh, it means to acquit. It means to uh, gauge and judge as innocent. It means to free. He shows them the list. He reminds them of who they were so that now he can show them who they are. And these were some of you, right? But now you're washed. But now you're sanctified. But now you are justified in the and only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I'm processing all these things. I'm wrestling with all these things. And then I am brought to the courtroom. Okay, so check this out. I know most of us have not been there before. Uh, most of us have just like seen it on TV somewhere. Most of us have, have um, you know, this is like the place we don't want to go. Like, please, Lord, not the courtroom. Um, Here's the image I have. You and I there together in the courtroom. And you and I getting to hear the case against one another. I hear all of your sins. You hear all of mine. I hear all the ways that you aren't worthy. And you hear about my guilt. One after another. And not just me and you, but, but all of us. All of us in Christ, in the same courtroom. And all of us in Christ, hearing person after person, the reason for their guilt. And then they did that. And because of that, it led them to do that. And I, I know this will be hard to believe, but guess what? They did that too. 
and we're hearing everyone's. And in the room, listen, there is this shared sense of guilt. It was missing in Corinth, and I fear that it's missing here. Why is it that some seem more guilty than you? Why is it that some seem like they're more in need of mercy than you are? Why is it that you find yourself in the courtroom and you start hearing the lists of the sins of those around you and you're instantly categorizing yours versus theirs? Paul does something communally. He says, you once and now you are. Let's say it this way. Next slide. The body of Christ is equally guilty of sin and equally innocent in Christ. Why does Paul all of a sudden get to justification and a teaching on lawsuits? Because the church in Corinth is not believing this. They don't believe that their unity in Christ comes from everyone having shared guilt and now in Christ everyone been acquitted, justified, seen as innocent through the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus. And so guess what's happening? Brother against brother, people in frivolous lawsuits gauging their sin against one another. Am I saying we shouldn't deal with our stuff? No, we should deal with our stuff. Confess our sin, work with it between our brothers and sisters. Confess and share our pain and give opportunities for reconciliation and repentance. Instead, what do we do? Categorize. You're more guilty than me. You need more innocence than I'll ever need. Listen, I feel like, and I know it's weird to say it this way, but I really believe that the heart of Paul was wanting the church in Corinth to understand why they are unified. If this is true, married people in the room, this sets the tone for your marriage. If this isn't true, don't worry about it. But if this is true, it sets the tone for your marriage. Why? Guess what? Because every day you wake up next to someone who is equally guilty of sin and equally innocent in Christ as brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's your marriage. How many days have I woken up and I thought she is more guilty? She's in more need. It's her problem. She needs to work on 1-800 herself. And if she can just figure that out, then this marriage will get to a good place. And my lack of seeing this truth consistently is hurting me bringing Heidi into my heart. Because I'm still trying to categorize, I'm still trying to gauge, I'm, I'm still praying like she's the guilty one. 
and forgetting that I once was, but now I am, and she is with me, and we're in a battle against the flesh, but we have the Spirit of God in us now, and we are primarily brother and sister in Christ. If this is true, then it sets the tone for your dating relationships. Again, I know many of you are existing like this isn't true. Why? Because you're dating someone who has no interest in pursuing the things of God. You claim to desire to follow the character of God, and yet you're pursuing a man or a woman who can barely even utter the name of Jesus without cringing. If this is true, it has every matter to do, every tone to set with who you date and how you date them. If this is true, it sets the tone for how you interact with coworkers. If this is true, if this is true, it changes the pattern and rhythm of relationships in the body of Christ forever. people in Corinth needed to grow up. Most of us have a natural aversion to walking through and dealing with our stuff and in so doing the world is seeing relationships that have more strife in the church than out. But I'm wondering if maybe just maybe together we could find new gratitude in who we were and who we are together. I'm wondering if we, as the local body of Christ, a part of a global body of Christ, could understand this truth and could eliminate by the power of the Spirit, backbiting, judgment, gossip, hatred, malice, envy in the church. Could we eradicate it? Well, Mark, that will never happen. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? We say we want to pursue Christ, and then we give all of these exit clauses for our sin. No, God, please come and help us. Increase our faith. Allow our relationships in this body to show the world the power of grace and reconciliation. And I believe that Paul, as he pleads for Corinth, he's pleading with them to remember that they have communally, together, been acquitted and that now with the spirit of God in them unifies them as the body of Christ and now do you understand those that know what's coming in 1 Corinthians why he is so heavy on the body of Christ it's because of statements like this let's stand together come on Very simply, very simply, do you believe this or not? Not by word, but by deed. Do you believe it or not? If you did, tonight there would be pursuits of you relationally with others that you've harbored up anger and malice and hatred. If you believe this tonight, it would mean repentance many of you, to your husband and wife. It's their guilt. It's their struggle. It's their battle. No. It's all of us in Christ.
together, we. So let's now pray in boldness that God will grow us up, increase our faith, and that he will do such a work in relationships in this body that the world would see a different kind of way to live. So Father, we now as your bride are asking God for your help, your guidance, your care, and your love. We want to celebrate what we have in you. God, we confess we're distracted. We've categorized people around us. We've sentenced people to death even though you haven't. I'm praying right now for reconciliation by the power and the blood of your son Jesus to reign supreme in this room. I'm praying that we would be a body that embraces one another, that pursues one another, that comes alongside one another in our pursuit of you. I pray, God, that you do a massive work in this body right now. That on this week we wouldn't just be thankful for the things that we say every year, but God, you would give us in this moment a gratitude of being a part of your body, your bride. So God, we, as your church, pray this now. Help us, God.